Phil said, let's, let's make that our prayer, that God would speak to us directly. And so, uh, let's just ask Him that. Lord, we thank You. We thank You for this day. We thank You for this place that You've provided that we can gather together. We thank You for Your eternal life-giving Word. And we thank You for the gift of the Holy Spirit that teaches, that comes and guides us, that leads us. And so, we ask that You would do that, that You would speak to our hearts this morning, that You would show us exactly what You want us to see as we open Your Word today. Uh, uh, we know that your word, as we, as we open it and the Holy Spirit moves, it's going to point us more fully to you. It's going to show us uh, just the beauty of, of Christ and all things. And so we pray that we would see that more fully this morning as we open your word, as we spend time uh, seeking you in it. We thank you that you meet us, that you lead us, that you guide us. We would be hopelessly lost without you. And we thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to start with very basic, basic. Uh, this is nothing groundbreaking. If they say this, you'll go, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. I don't think many people would uh, disagree. But whenever uh, we seek to be good at anything, any discipline, uh, any uh, subject, anything we want to do, whether it's our profession, a hobby, sport, whatever it is, we have to have some foundational things in place or we'll never really get very good at anything. Uh, I see it very clearly in my children right now when you look at uh, kind of where they are, different ages. Uh, my oldest son, Asher, is about to turn nine, and then Jed just turned seven, and Quinn is four. And I see where they are in their reading, right? Like I, I watch with Quinn as he's learning his ABCs, and he's starting to put little things together. And you see the foundation building blocks that are there. And then Jed's a little better, and he's starting to read now and getting things, and he's, he's doing pretty well. And then Asher now has become pretty fluent, and he's starting to get... And you see right in front of me the different ways that those are happening, how... Those foundations have to be in place before you can get to the point where you're reading and you're asking the questions and seeking the things that Asher now is. And we say that in, in really any discipline and anything that would be the case. Uh, for example, music. If you have musical talent, which, which I have none, <laughs> that's why, uh, unfortunately, a couple of times I've left the microphone on and you've seen that very clearly uh, as we're singing. Uh, I, I heard it compared to a howling dog once by someone who was very honest with me. Uh, which is probably true. That's probably it. But but as you grow in music, right, you have to know the basics. You have to learn how to read music and keep time and do those things. And then as you grow in it and you get fluent in it and you get good at it, then you can begin to do other things and you can kind of improvise. And if you see a really great band play together, yes, they'll be playing their song, but they can go in and out and do all kinds of different things because those foundations are so in place. Uh, I, I always think of the sports analogy as, as a basketball player my whole life and love basketball. If you watch really, really good basketball players that know the basics, they can begin to improvise and do all kinds of things. And guys who have never played together can step on a court together and within a few minutes begin to play very well together because they're well versed in the foundational things. And so that's true for all of us in all different ways to really be good at anything, to begin to live it out, to begin to see it. Those foundations have to be in place. And I mention that because that's really what Paul does in his letters. He's been doing that in Colossians. He brings some very foundational things to bear on who we are in Christ and what that looks like and how that then uh, affects the way we live and we go forth and everything else as we go. And you have to have the foundations correct and right or you'll get off in all different ways. And so as you read through Paul's letters, especially here in Colossians that we're looking at, we've been working our way through that. If you read any of Paul's letters, he follows a very similar pattern in just about all of them. He lays down some huge foundational realities theologically of who we are and how we relate to God and what that looks like. And then a lot of times he moves into some practical things that now we live out of this. 
This is who you are. This is your identity. He's been saying that to us over and over when we read in Colossians. We said at the very beginning as we started in this series that there were some bad teachings coming into the church there. And so Paul goes in and he starts to correct those. For example, you get in chapter one, he paints this incredible picture of of who Christ is. And he's the creator and he's before all things. And he gives you this incredible picture. He's pointing you to these foundational things. And then he tells you about what Christ has done for you. And now you are hidden in Christ and you are seated with God. And so put to death what is earthly in you. Now live in this way. And so he just he so uh, brilliantly just lays this foundation and he keeps building on it. And he keeps going back over and over. Right. Like last week when we started, and we were talking about what it looks like to walk in the spirit in verse 12. And he just continues to remind you of the foundational things. Right? he says, as God's chosen one ones, holy and beloved now. Right. And so that's foundational about who you are. And then this is what it looks like. And so he does that over and over and over again, because it's so important that we see that. And so he tells us, as we looked at just the last couple of weeks, that that Christ is all and he's in all. Right. And he gives us that picture of there's a there's a Uh, uh, unity in all of us and how we come to God. It's all through Jesus and what he's done for us, no matter what your background or where you came from. We're all the same in that way. We're all saved in the same way. And he keeps pointing us to those foundational things. And so what we're going to get to today, uh, he kind of shifts gears a little bit and almost becomes very practical. He starts to talk about relationships, husbands and wives, children and parents, a slave and master, which in our day, we could say, really, it's like employer and employee. And we'll talk a little bit about what he means when he talks about slavery and no, the Bible does not endorse slavery. And so if you if that ever comes to your mind, we'll talk about that in a minute. But it does not endorse slavery. But we're going to look at those very practical relationships. But as we do, he continues to point us back to some very foundational things. He never leaves that. He always comes back to why uh, this is so foundational in the way we live out of this. And so there's some very practical things here, but they have to continue to be flowing out of the foundation of who you are in Christ and what that means and what that looks like. And so even here, as we look at these things, he's going to he's going to point you back to some different things that are foundational. So the way I want us to look at these verses, we're really going to look at verses 18 to chapter four, verse one. So three, 18 to four, one. That's kind of where we are as we're walking through Colossians. But the way I want us to look at it this morning is, is first just to think about the foundation for heeding the practical wisdom he gives. Right. If we don't see the foundation of why we should even listen to this, it's easy to kind of blow off the advice. Right. It's like if somebody gives you advice that really knows what they're talking about, you go, yes, I want to. Right. If they've proven that their their uh, wisdom is trustworthy, then you say, yes, I want to hear what you have to say. If, if not, then you don't. So we want to think about the foundations that are there. And then secondly, what is the practical wisdom he gives here and why is it good? It's very good what he tells us. But why is this practical wisdom good for us? And and what is it? What does he tell us that's so practical? And so we need to get the foundation right first, and then we'll look at the practical wisdom he gives us. And so foundation for heeding this wisdom. And the way I want us to look at this is we start in verse 18, and he starts to talk about husbands and wives, children and their parents, uh, masters, slaves. He gets to that. But then look at verse 22. We're going to start there, and then we'll kind of work our way back and look at the practical advice he gives us. But verse 22, he says, slaves... Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, 
fearing the Lord. And so foundationally, the first thing I want us to look at of why we want to take this practical wisdom that Paul lays forward for us is what he says right there. He says, I want you to do this. The foundational thing is out of sincerity of heart, not as people pleaser, but out of fear of the Lord. And as that comes out of my mouth, whenever I say that phrase, whenever I get to that in scripture, I'm always like, it's the loaded thing. Like do this out of fear of the Lord. Uh, I've had a lot of people ask me that at different times. What's the deal with fear of the Lord? Does God want us to be afraid of him? That sounds terrible. A lot of people recoil. Maybe you hear that and you go, oh, right. He just said to do this out of fear of the Lord. And we can hear that and go, I don't really like that. I don't like that so much. And we can easily start to kind of pull back from that. I've actually heard people say that. Like that sounds like a horrible reason to me to follow God because you're afraid of him. Right now, what they're doing a lot of times, and maybe you're doing this, is you put fear that maybe you have of another person, a sinful, broken person that's not perfect and holy in every way like God is. And you put it in those terms. And that sounds horrible. Right. Doing something because you're afraid of a person sounds really bad. Maybe you think of like a bad boss that you've had that's just really harsh. Right. And so you don't want to do anything wrong because, oh, no, my boss is going to get me kind of thing. And so we can put it in human terms and we start to focus on it that way. But I want us to think about why this is a foundational thing and why it's really important and actually why it's really good. It's very helpful to think about this idea of the fear of the Lord. And so uh, when we look throughout Scripture, this phrase comes up a lot. It says this quite a bit, actually, especially in the Old Testament. We see this over and over the fear of the Lord. If you read through Proverbs, Proverbs is often uh, considered the wisdom literature. A lot of Proverbs is by uh, Solomon and he's telling you of his great wisdom and he's telling you these things. It says fear of the Lord a lot in Proverbs, right? As you start to just read through Proverbs, you get a lot of things that it says about the fear of the Lord. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, right? That you have to have the fear of the Lord to really have true wisdom and knowledge. It says the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Uh, it says when you have the fear of the Lord, you have a strong confidence. Uh, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. He uses that phrase. The fear of the Lord is better than great treasure. It is wisdom. He says it's actually wisdom to have fear of the Lord. He says, and it leads to life. That's just a few of the things that we see in Proverbs as we start to read as that phrase comes up over and over. The fear of the Lord uh, leads to life. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. And so when you read what Scripture says about the fear of the Lord and you start to see that picture of what it looks like, what it is, is a beautiful picture of abundant blessing in your life. That's, that's really what gets laid out when you start to read through that, especially in Proverbs, where it says it over and over. It's always positive. It's always blessings that if you have the fear of the Lord, you have all these different things. And so I want us to think about what that picture actually looks like in Scripture, what do we mean when we say the fear of the Lord? I think the big picture we begin to see when we look through all of Scripture, the big picture of it is that God is the creator of all things. Right. Right there at the very beginning, God spoke and said, let there be light. And there was light. God made all things through the power of his word. He spoke and they happened. I mean, just to think about that for a second, all things that exist came into existence because God spoke. He spoke them by the power of his word into existence. We read those kind of things. We say those kind of things and gloss over it. Right. I mean, just imagine if you saw somebody speak and said, hey, let there be a tree and boom, a tree's right there. Right. 
you'd be kind of overwhelmed by that. Right? But it also tells us in Scripture that he not only uh, creates by the power of his word, he recreates by the power of his word, that he brings new life in us through his word. Uh, it also tells us that he upholds all things by the power of his word. Right. Hebrews one says that that all things remain in existence through the power of God's word. I say this often because it helps me to think of it this way. But Jonathan Edwards once said that if God removed us from his thoughts for a millisecond, we would cease to be. And so when you think of things that way, when you start to put God in those terms, he created all things by speaking. He sustains all things by the power of our word, by the power of his word. You have breath in your lungs today because God is holding you together by the power of his word. Uh, if you've ever seen the universe, right, how large we know now our universe is. And here is Earth floating in the middle of all these stars and planets and everything that's out there. There's as many planets as there are or, or as many stars as there are uh, uh, specks of sand on all the seashores on Earth. Right? Just let that sink in for a second. And God holds us right in the middle of that in perfect balance with the perfect balance of heat and light and all the things we need to sustain us living. Right. And he does all that by the power of his word. And so my question is, when you think about that, what is the proper response to a God like that? It's it's awe. Right? It's being overwhelmed. It's reverence. It's astonishment. It's what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. And that's what it means when it talks about that. A reverential awe for who God is. That He creates and sustains. He holds all things together. That's who God is. And so when we think on that and we see that, the proper response is the fear of the Lord. That He is the final authority of all things. That this is His world and He holds it together and He's made the rules and He knows how it works best because it's all His. Every bit of it. And so the response to that is to have an awe of who God is. And when you put all that together and you think of it that way, and then you go back and you read through that list of what it says in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge and hatred of evil and its wisdom and it's better than great pre- treasure. That when you begin to see the God of the universe that holds all things together and you can have a relationship with him, that he's spoken to us in his word The proper response is awe. A God that is that big would care enough to speak to us. A reverential awe of who he is. That's the fear of the Lord. And so Paul says that and he points us to that with this practical advice. Do this and don't do it to please people. Don't do it just because I'm telling you to do it. Do it out of fear of the Lord. Do it out of reverence for the God who made everything and holds everything together and now has spoken to us. You see the difference? He starts to point us to that. Very foundational in why we respond to God the way we do. Why we would obey him. Why we would take the, uh, the uh, advice he gives us here. And so we need to see that. So the foundational first part, anyway, is that idea of the fear of the Lord. A reverential awe of who God is. The second part, look at what he says in verse 23. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Right? That, that goes right with what he says right before that fear of the Lord. Don't do it as people pleasers, but do your work unto God. And I want you just to think how that connects to the fear of the Lord, that idea. 
It's all God's. You are God's. This world is God's. He holds everything together. It's all his. It makes no sense that you would operate. And I'm trying to please what this person thinks and ignoring God. In fact, we say all the time, ignoring God and the world he created is sin. And we don't do it in proper uh, reverence to him. We're ignoring the way we were very created. And so we do things to God because of who he is and what he's done and the fear of the Lord, that proper reverence for who he is. And so Paul says, do these things, not just because I'm telling you, not so people will pat you on the back and say, oh, what a good guy he is. You do it out of reverence of the creator God of the universe. See how foundational that is? How that will change the way we begin to live and act and move in our lives if we begin to do things out of reverence to him as opposed to what other people might think. It's particularly important when we start to think about practical wisdom he gives here. And some of it will fly in the face of what our world says. What maybe our culture says. And so when we're doing it out of reverence for God and not what people say, then it puts things in their proper places. Does that make sense? How foundational that is to see. Uh, The last part to put that together, the last part there, look at verse uh, 25. He says for the wrong or 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And then he says for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I want to just focus in there on verse 25. He says, you trust God. You don't worry about what people say. You do it in reverence to God. You do it out of fear of the Lord, pointing to him, not what people say or them pointing, patting you in the back or any of those things. Do it. He says, because you can trust God. There is no partiality. He's just. And he's basically saying he's good. God is good and you can trust him. You can trust them even when the world says one thing and God says something else and you go, I don't know how this is going to work. And I may even be persecuted for that. That's very common. They're seeing that all the time in the New Testament. He says you do it out of reverence for God because there is no partiality with God. He's going to repay all. He is just and he's going and he's good. He says so you can trust him. Foundationally, you do what God tells you over what the world says because you can trust him. He's not only creator and sustainer, he's also redeemer. He's good. We see the perfect picture of that in Scripture on the cross of Jesus. God is perfectly loving and he's perfectly just. Sin has to be dealt with or God would cease to be God. Perfect in every way means perfect justice. He is just and he is good and he holds those things together. You see that? That's what he's saying. There's no partiality here with God. And he says that's a reason that you can trust him and you can point to him. Right? So he says you do that. We see that perfectly in Jesus. Jesus is the creator, sustainer, redeemer. He loves us. He, he gives us uh, forgiveness for our sins, but he's willingly takes on our sins and pays for it so that God is still just. You see that? There has to be both. He can't just say, I'm going to forgive you of everything and push it under the rug and do away with it. Payment has to be made or God would cease to be God. And so we see God's goodness and we see his justice. We see how perfectly right he is in every way when Jesus comes and dies on the cross. He upholds God's perfect love and his perfect justice together on the cross. 
And so basically, you, you do this because you can trust that God is good. Which, by the way, that side of it, the goodness of God, is what keeps the fear of the Lord from being your cowering in the corner afraid of God. There should be a reverential awe to who God is. Yes, he holds all things together. He sustains all things, but he's completely loving and just. And it holds those in balance. So, yes, we have a reverence for who God is. And yes, there's that picture in Scripture of trembling before the Lord, the one that holds all things together. But then there's this picture that God is good and he's loving and he's just. That he's your father. That through Christ you can come directly to him and have access to him. And so you put all those together and that's kind of the foundational reasons we do what he tells us to do. He says all those things right here. So what about the practical advice he gives? And so go back to verses 18 and 19. And there's three main things here I want to hit on and we'll do them pretty quickly. But verses 18 and 19, first thing he says, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husband, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Right. So this is so we've got fear of the Lord and now I've got wives submitting to husbands. Right. Two things that people always go. "Ah," Right. Both of them in the same passage, which, by the way, is why we preach through whole books of the Bible. It's easy to ignore some of those things when we pick and choose. But when we actually work our way through what all of God's word says, it's all breathed out by God. It's all profitable. Then it brings us face to face with these things. So he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And then he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And so there's a lot of things we could say on this. And I'm not going to make this a whole sermon on uh, different roles of men and women. We've been talking about that in our Sunday school classes. We've been walking through some of those things, what scripture does and the way it tells us. And so I'm going to do this just briefly in this. You can go and read Ephesians 5 and get this in more detail, what Paul says on the matter as far as husbands and wives and how they work together. But big picture, what he says in Ephesians 5 is husbands, love your wives uh, as Christ has loved the church. And then he goes on to say marriage itself is a picture pointing us more fully to who God is and the way he loves us. And so he kind of sets the table foundationally of why that is and what that looks like. And so then we go, well, what does that look like? What does that mean? Wives submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. And so I always have, feel like I have to start, this is such a loaded thing when you get to it. And the reason is, is because it's been done so poorly for so long that we have all this baggage that goes with it. Right? Wives submit to your husband as to the Lord. What it doesn't mean. Start there first. Doesn't mean husbands, you boss your wives around. It doesn't mean you're ugly to her or you tell her, hey, this is what I said and this is what goes and I'm the law and I act that way and I do those things. That's not what it's talking about. That's not the picture that God paints. I mean, think about what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It doesn't look like that. But we see it done that way at different times poorly. And so we recoil when we see that. It doesn't mean that... uh, Uh, Women are inferior to men in any way, shape or form. And if that's in your mind, you need to get rid of that. That's not true. Genesis one says men and women were both made in God's image. Both made in God's image, equal in worth and value before the Lord. Men are not smarter than women. Women are not smarter than men. They're different. 
They reflect back God in some fundamentally different ways, but they are equal in worth and value before the Lord. So if you start to say, well, wives submit to your husbands and then you start to backfill that. Well, well that means because God guys are smarter. That's a lie. It's not what the Bible says at all. And so that's not that. That's not what it is. And so we think about, well, what is the picture that's there when you go back and you say, well, why does God say that? And I think the picture that you see in Scripture is that men and women are equal, but they're different. Does anyone object to that idea that men and women are different in some fundamental ways? I don't think I haven't really met anybody that says that wants to take that fight on. But maybe maybe you are. And we can talk about it later if you are. But men and women are fundamentally different in some ways. And so when we go, well, what's the point of having submission, men taking leadership roles in different areas? Why is that the case? I think you go back to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. It's pointing more fully to who God is. And so you go, well, who is God? What does the Bible tell us about who God is? God has eternally existed in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Trinity as a Christian church. That's fundamental to what we believe. And when we talk about the Trinity, we mean God has eternally existed in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each is fully God, yet there, there is one God. Right? That kind of makes your head hurt. Right? That's the picture that Scripture points to us. They're all equally God. They're all separate, unique person, but they're one. And they're all God. And that's the picture that you see. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then when you read through Scripture, you see the way God uh, interacts within the Trinity. I always point people to John 13 to John 17. I think you get the clearest picture there. That's not the only place, but it gives you a clear picture because Jesus is talking about the Father and the Holy Spirit and the way they work and what that looks like. And he's saying that over and over and he's coming back to that as you read through. Right. That's the upper room. Jesus teaching the disciples. He points to so many things about what that looks like. And that informs a lot of what we believe about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's not the fullness of it, but that points us to a lot of it. And so when you look at that and you begin to see that picture, they're equally. Jesus is fully God. We just saw that in Colossians, right? Colossians 2, he says that the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus. Fullness of deity. He's fully God. But yet what you see, even in those passages in John, is you see Jesus deferring to the Father over and over. He says things like, I don't say anything but what the Father has told me to say. Now, part of that is because there's just a oneness with the Father and the Son. They're both fully God. But then you see this incredible picture the night before Jesus dies, right after he leaves the upper room. And he goes and he bows down and he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know that picture. Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, now would be the time. Right? That's what he says. Talking about the cup of God's wrath as Jesus would take our sin and God's wrath would be poured out on him. He says, if there be any other way, this would be the time to let me know. And then the next thing he says is not my will, but yours be done. Jesus submits to the will of the father. You see that in scripture. See it multiple times. And so I think the picture that we get when we put marriage in its proper place, what Paul's talking about husbands and wives and husbands, the way you love your wives and wives submit to your husbands that is as fitting to the Lord is you are pointing more fully to what God's like. We get to play that role out in our marriages to point more fully to God. But the picture, and this is where it gets distorted. We go, oh, I don't know about that. I don't like that. And we pull back and we kind of say, Ugh. right? 
our culture today. I don't I don't like to go there. But husbands, the charge to you is to love your wives and not be harsh with them. That's what he says. Ephesians five, he says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. If you're loving your wife the way Christ is loving the church. Which is pursuing her. Forgiving, coming after her, doing all. Think of the picture of the way Jesus loves us. We blow it and he continues to pursue us. Husbands, if you're loving your wife that way, suddenly that idea of submitting and coming alongside and caring for your husband and encouraging him and walking with him is not hard. It's a beautiful picture that points to who God is more fully, which Paul says that's the mystery. That's what marriage is about, to point more fully to who God is. And so when we take that and we look at it through a lens of our culture and not in the fear of the Lord, not in God is giving us this to glorify him and pointing to him, we can recoil and get upset. When we firmly root it in what scripture says, in the fear of the Lord, in a reverential awe for who God is, we want everything we do to point to how great God is, including our marriages, then suddenly it makes sense. And so that's the picture there as he calls us wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wife. Don't be harsh with her. That means don't be little. Don't be frustrated. Don't uh, push her away. Don't do any of those things. You love her as Christ has loved you. That's the picture that's there. And when we begin to do that, it points more fully to who God is. And so that's the first part, just a practical wisdom of what that looks like. Let me just point out to you, though, uh, as he says their husbands love your wives, the connotation there is with a covenantal love, not just a feeling, not just romantic love, which you should have romantic love and there should be feelings involved. Those aren't bad things. But loving your wife, as he's talking about here, is even when you don't feel like it. Serving and coming alongside and caring for even when the feelings aren't real strong. Or maybe you're frustrated. That's that's the picture of the way Christ loves us. And so it's a beautiful picture that points us more fully to who God is when we see it that way. And so very practical wisdom he gives us. Second thing he says here, look at 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not discourage your children. I'm sorry, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And so he says, children, obey your parents, right? This pleases the Lord. And so if you're here and you're with your parents or your kids that are here, obey your parents. Listen to them. Right? God has set it up that way. That's actually uh, his plan. Simply put, God designed families and he gave you parents and he put them there. And then he says, obey them. Honor them. Ten Commandments. Honor your parents. It's the one commandment with a promise and you'll have long life. And so God sets it up and he tells it that way. There's a promise of a long life. And so just very practically, if we're having reverential awe for who God is and he says, I've set this up and I've given you a family. So obey your parents. We do that because he knows how it works best. Now, there's one caveat to that. Obey your parents. Yes, obey and honor your parents. But I think there's a picture in Luke 14 that kind of gives you, I don't want to say a loophole because that's not right. That's not the way to say it. But there's a picture there of what Jesus says in Luke 14. He says, you should love me, Jesus. We should love Jesus so much 
that it looks like hate. Every other relationship looks like hate in comparison. And so what I'm going to is you obey your parents and you honor them and you submit to their authority and you seek to to make them honored in your life. But you obey Jesus above your parents. It's the only thing. That is, if your parents are asking you or pointing you to do something that Christ says don't do, you honor Christ. Now, that's a difficult situation to be in. If you're a child, grown or otherwise, and your parents are not believers, and they're pointing you to things that Christ says clearly, He says, you honor me. You love me over your family. And Jesus says, sometimes that's going to cause different problems and division. And you continue to love me, and God will honor that. And you love and you do it as respectfully. You honor your parents. You walk with them. Even if your parents are unbelieving and you're grown and they're in your life, you seek to honor them. You seek to obey them. You seek to do and point to those things. But you make sure that Christ is supreme in your life. But then the flip side of that is fathers. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. That easily could be translated parents. It could be father or parents. And so I'm going to say it, parents, just because it goes to both fathers and mothers. Don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And there's a lot of things we could say that would provoke your children. Being overly harsh with your kids. Being really, really hard on them. And that doesn't mean not, I'm not talking about calling them to discipline. I'm not talking about doing the things God tells you. You are supposed to instruct your kids and discipline them. But being overly harsh. Being really difficult. Being just overbearing on them in a lot of ways. Now that's, you seek the Lord on that. You seek the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you on what that looks like. But there's a lot of things we could say. We could do a whole sermon on just that verse. Parents, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. But I'm going to say one thing here in light of this. When I was in seminary, uh, I was about to graduate and Asher was about to be born. So my first child... I have no clue. I still, in a lot of ways, have no clue what I'm doing, but uh, really had no clue at that moment. And I remember going to one of my professors and I said, what book, what could you point me to? And he gave me a book. And this guy was an early child. Dr. Ecker was early childhood specialist, right? That was his doctorate. And he was this great, brilliant guy who loved children, who had wonderful kids. And, and I really respected his opinion. He gave me this book and I read it. And I underlined everything and I took notes and I read all this. And I was talking to one of my friends and I said, well, what did it say? You know, what was this book that was so good? And I said, you know, I read the whole thing and I took all these notes and this is what I came away with. You're going to screw up a whole lot as a parent. But that love covers a whole lot of sins. And so make sure your kids know that you love them. That's basically what the book said. You're going to mess it up a lot, but make sure that you, they know that you love them. And so that's in words and that's in deeds and that's the way that you care for them. And so simply put, if you're here today and your children, you have children and you haven't told them today that you love them, tell them that you love them. Do it unprovoked, not in response to something. Just go to them and tell them that you love them and make sure that they know that you love them. You are supposed to correct them. You are supposed to tell them different things. You're supposed to do those things, but if you're doing it in love and they know that you love them, that covers so many things. And so continue to do that. Continue to point to your kids. Tell them and show them. Make sure that they know it. Right? Wallace, I think that was your cue to tell 
Tell your child, right? Tell them that you love them, right? So children don't provoke, or parents don't provoke your children that they become discouraged, but continue to love them. And in that, the greatest way you can show love to your children is to have the gospel saturated in every single thing you do. The way that you correct, the way that you love them, the way that you encourage them, you continually point them back to the love of the Father. That that is not something they can earn or lose, no matter what they do or mistakes they make or where they go or what that looks like, that God loves them and He's pursuing them. And you continue to saturate everything that you do with the Gospel. There's nothing more loving you can do than that. And so continue to do that. Last one here, real quickly. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so just real briefly, if you have that struggle at all with, well, does the Bible and somehow uh, ordain or point to or encourage slavery, it does not. This is a reality of the world that they lived in, and there's a whole range of what that looked like. Uh, Your translation might say bondservant. Some people would uh, enter into an agreement to be a bondservant, or what it says, slave. Right? They were the property of a person. They would work for them, but it was basically like a working relationship. I'm going to work for you for this many years, and now I'm your slave, and I do what you say, but I'm your employee. And so it would be an employee-employer relationship in a lot of ways. Sometimes slavery was forced, and it was hideous, and it was awful, and it was wrong. And so Paul points the, the masters to what that looks like to honor God in that. You treat them justly and fairly and care for them and all that. So how do we put that just for today? I know for a fact, sitting right here, there's a lot of you that work for people that are really difficult to work for. Right? You're alive and you have a job. That's true of somebody in here for absolutely certain. Right? And so he says clearly when you are in a difficult situation and it's a hard job and what it looks for, you do your work unto the Lord and you seek to honor God. It goes back to why the fear of the Lord, those foundational things are so important. The foundations get revealed and they become so important when it's difficult situations. Right? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. What if your husband's not loving you like Christ loved the church and he's doing some, he's not that great. You honor God in your relationship. You do it for Him. You do it out of fear of the Lord. You do it to please God. You do your work under the Lord. It's the same with our jobs. We're seeking to honor God in all things that we do. And so it's not doing it just so people will pat us on the back, not doing it as people pleasers. He says you do it out of fear of the Lord. And so there's a real clear practical application to whatever work you're doing. You seek to honor God in whatever job that you have. You make... You do your work the best you can to honor God and glorify Him. And He'll take care of the rest. That's what He says. There's no partiality. And if they're really harsh to you, God will be the judge and He will take care of that in due time. And so you just continue to honor the Lord. The same is true if you're a master or you have a business or you have people working for you, you treat them fairly. You honor God in the way you pay people their wages, the way you take care of them, the way that you point them, and all those things in both sides of that. 
And so really what we could say as we come to the end of just this section, and we'll end here this morning, in all of these, the foundational truth is we seek to honor God in everything we do. We have a healthy fear of the Lord, a reverential awe that all that we have and all that we are, every relationship, everything that's been given us is given us so that we can glorify God. We can point more fully to who he is. And he allows us that privilege in our relationships, in our lives, working everything else with our children to make much of him. What a wonderful gift that he gives us, that we get that opportunity for this breath in our life, this amount of time to glorify God in all these ways. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for uh, these letters that you inspired, that you have written down for us, that you have shown us who you are, the ways we should respond to you, the ways that we should come to you. We thank you for that. I pray that you'd give us uh, just an ever uh, present uh, just sensitivity to your spirit's leading in all things that we would as uh, parents, as spouses, as workers, co-workers, bosses, whatever it may be, wherever you may have placed us, that we would follow your spirit's leading in those things and seek to make much of you in all those relationships. We pray all of this for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.